Put on your fancy clothes because this week we're going to the races on The Cinema Crew with Village Cinemas. The true story of a Melbourne Cup winner in Ride Like a Girl. Melbourne Cup, 1965. Light fingers. 88. Empire Rose. 1974. Think big. Let the others ride the different trainers, why can't I? Because you're not ready. I'm ready, Dad. Let's go come last, Dad. Yeah, I know it's this, Steve. Let's go come last, Dad. Thanks, Steve. Things get spooky in scary stories to tell in the dark. What? It's a book of scary stories. Scares. You. Scary stories. The award-winning novel hits the big screen in The Goldfinch. When I lost her... I lost sight of any landmark that might have led me someplace happier. mother was killed. And offbeat zombie fun in the dead don't die. In this peaceful town, on these quiet streets, something terrifying, something horrifying is coming. Excuse me, we're closed. Get away from me! That's this week on The Cinema Crew. Hello and welcome to The Cinema Crew, the podcast that talks new movies every week. My name is Michael Campbell, but you can call me Cambo. And joining me, as always, is Vary McIntyre. Hello. And Dan Miranda. Hey. Now, your chance to win a gold-class double pass coming up just a little later on, but first. You have a fine career in the country. I don't want a fine career in the bloody country. I want to ride group ones. I want to be the best. The girl's never going to win the Melbourne Cup, mate. The only thing that matters is the odds you give yourself. Can I do this? I know the host can. You've got to be a champion. You found it, little girl. The story of Michelle Payne is a pretty incredible story. She overcame all the odds and was crowned the first female jockey to win the Melbourne Cup. Sounds like something out of a movie, doesn't it? Well, that's what Rachel Griffiths thought as she was helming the big screen adaptation. But does it work? Well, you've pretty much summed up the film. That's what I was going to (laughs) say. That's exactly what it's about. It definitely works as a story. Uh, Australians love sporting stories, and it's got all of those elements that you would want from Australian sporting film. It's got the prize to be won, the obstacles, except it's got a woman at the centre of the story. So that's a little different. And Australians also love an underdog story as well, which is the the Michelle Payne story. Well, she was was one of ten children. That's already an underdog. She was the youngest, (laughs) I believe, from the whole family. So, you know, she was kicking the dirt. Yeah, yeah. And she was she battling all kind of like like family dramas, obviously some mm. sexism in the industry. She yeah. she struggled against a lot to, you know, obviously it's a true event, most people know what happened, overcome all of that to become like a champion jockey. Yeah, and what I didn't know as well was one of her sisters who did actually tragically die after she fell off a horse, she was the second woman to ride professionally in the state. So her whole family's been overcoming these hurdles. So 
as amazing as the Michelle Payne story is, how do you think the film translates from inspiring story to actual cinematic event? I think it, as Vari mentioned before, it does have all those tropes that Australian sports story you'd come to expect. So I think it does have a, a lead up. You know what her main overarching goal is, which is obviously to win the Melbourne Cup or be the first female jockey to win the Melbourne Cup. Mm. But I think throughout the entire film, your your feeling is that why does she want to win the Melbourne Cup? Is it because she wants to prove her something to herself or something to her deceased mother or something to her dad? I feel like the reasoning why she wanted to do that was a little left unanswered. Right, so you're thinking mm. the the object of what she wants to do is more present but the reason why she wants to do it not so much. Correct. Yeah, it just does seem like they set up that she, because she's the youngest of ten children, she just wants to keep up or outdo her siblings. She's got so much to look up to. Everybody in her family was into racing or at least horses. They had their own farm. Um, so she was just surrounded with that. And I guess if you don't know anything else, why wouldn't you want that as your life goal? What sort of jockey would you like to say? Uh, I just want to win the Melbourne Cup. I thought it was interesting as well that it's framed with documentary pieces of the real Michelle Payne as a child. So we see some real footage of her as a kid and like home movies, I guess. People are asking her what she wants to do and she's like, win the Melbourne Cup. She's yeah, like yeah. six. Yeah, <laughs> so, and, and that starts at the at the beginning of the film. She never falters. That's exactly what she wants yeah, to do. Yeah, but I suppose if that's your world and that's all you know, mm. that is. Well, well th that's what I found mm. quite interesting is that a lot of the film anchors on her relationship with her family Two specific relationships, one with her brother, which maybe we'll touch on in a bit, mm -hmm. but uh, also her father because her yeah. father was, uh, you know, he trained jockeys and he was horse obsessed and and it's this idea that she grew up in the environment that that is your life. Yeah. And I'm always interested in stories like that where it's like you almost wonder, she's wanted since the age of six to win the Melbourne Cup, but like w she was never ever going to not be involved in this world in some way because almost grooming is not the right word, but she was raised to always be around horses and horse racing. So I find that really interesting to like take someone from a child and see how it affects him in adulthood because she does become quite obsessed. Definitely because she goes against eventually her father's wishes, which is brought on by tragedy in the, in the family. So for her to keep pursuing what, you know, she was groomed to do essentially doesn't really make sense. Well, he's kind of created his own monster, hasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> but the other relationship I think is really important is uh, the one with her brother, uh, played by her real-life brother in the movie, mm. who is a real scene stealer. So charming. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Stevie Payne, 35 now, so that must have been interesting for him yeah. to relive that whole experience a bit older. <laughs> <laughs> what I thought was interesting about him, because uh, he has Down syndrome, mm. but I think wisely it's not really commented on in the movie. It's just a, mm. a a thing that happens and there, there is a cliche in movies where there is the scene that someone really calls it out and becomes uh, a bit preachy. But, I mean, it's just a fact of her life that her brother had Down syndrome and I kind of like that they present it very even-handedly like that. It's not too preachy. It's also quite sensitive. I think, it, I think it was a good portrayal. I also think kudos to actress Teresa Palmer because oh, yeah. I felt her portrayal of the emotional journey of Michelle Payne um, was very believable in the way that, you know, you you 100% uh, were invested with her, her story the entire time. Having the film as 
female-centred with this as well, female director, female actress. I was actually surprised to learn that this is the first film produced under Screen Australia's Gender Matters program. Oh, really? Which is an initiative that Rachel Griffiths has really been pushing to have more gender equality in the film industry. Mm. That's cool. Didn't want to see you settle down and happy. It's okay, Dad. I found the one. How many legs has he got? Can I do this? I know the host can. He's going to be a champion. You found it, little girl. The important part of any movie like this is if the ending lands and the emotional moment of the big climactic, whether it be like a game or in this case race lands. Mm. I will say that that does. The last race for the Melbourne Cup is very tense, even though you know the outcome. I think that that lands, whereas the rest of the film was a little bit middling and kind of middle of the road, at least in the bigger moments it does work. Mm, I disagree with that. I think the tense parts of it came in the middle right. because I know that she was going to be injured and out of racing for a very long time and that sort of happened in the the second act of the film and the race where that that happens because it's in the middle of the film I'm like oh this is going to be the race where she falls because <laughs> they're making a big deal of it they're taking their time they're yep. explaining it going into it and I'm like oh I know she's gonna fall mm. and that was where the the suspense for it came. And then when she wins the Melbourne Cup at the end and I was like, so, so yeah, thought, I know. Yeah, yeah, I know what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So who do you think should see Ride Like a Girl? Oh, anyone who loves racing Victorian Tabcorp. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyone who loves Ladbrokes. Because apparently in quotes they had no editorial influence over its content but they did support its production through a sponsorship arrangement. <laughs> ah, there we go. Who will enjoy this film? Uh, fans of, I guess, uniquely... Australian stories, in particular female Australian stories um, and people who love a good underdog film. And if you're a fan of Magda Sabansky. Yeah, she has a couple of good scenes yeah, in that, doesn't funny. she? Sarah Bellows' book. When the stories come live. Sarah Bellows is a myth. You let a ghost story get into your head. That's all it is. Scary stories to tell in the dark. Scary stories to tell in the dark is a children's horror series released in the 80s. But the film adaptation of the books has been in the works since 2013 under the guidance of monster aficionado Guillermo del Toro. So after five years of build-up, do you think it will be worth it? I truly hope that this will be worth it, Gambo, because unfortunately we have not yet seen this picture, but I think... Considering that it is set uh, in the 60s, late 60s, based on an 80s novel and produced by none other than Guillermo del Toro, I think it's got everything going for it. Do you know what I mean? And, so, I, and I know of you love a practical like effect. Like I know you're a big fan of like the Henson Company yeah, and everything sure. they do. And this looks very much like they've built practical monsters. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think with his work on obviously The Shape of Water, I know that those monsters are so lifelike, but in a in a very unique way. They yeah. they they look tangible. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Harold. Yeah. Harold the Scarecrow looks incredible and yes. split into yeah. and I'm just so pumped. <laughs> but also I wanted to mention that the Alvin Schwartz book, I haven't actually read it, but a lot of the imagery in that book I know actually scared a lot of people yeah. because it's so Raw. It, it had complaints from like uh, like parent groups oh, really? and stuff like that, which is because I think 
I must have missed this book, and there's a series of them now. All throughout my childhood, it was always kind of goosebumps for me, which has already goosebumps. been mine for our nostalgia money mm-hmm. <laughs> previously. But now, but so when I first saw the trailer for this, I didn't recognize it at all. So this is set in 1968, and a group of teenagers enter a haunted house on Halloween. <laughs> Sounds like a joke, right? <laughs> Great. Um, and and read a book of scary stories that inevitably come to life, and. Sounds excellent. It sounds amazing. Mm. And it's a clever way because uh, from what I understand of the book, it is a collection of short stories. So it's a fun way to like actually tie it into a narrative mm. because you've got a film. I mean, it sometimes works in films to have a collection of short stories, but for the most part you want a through line. Of so course. It's, it's a clever way to actually have a through line of a movie as well. Yeah, and I think in this one each of the main characters are going to be related to one of those stories mm-hmm. and then they like get killed off. Killed? Yeah. Oh. So I heard the body count is like five people. Oh, and Mm. this is, we should point out, this is like kid horror. Well, I was going to compare it it to like what you say, Goosebumps. Yes. Uh, It's it's like a little older than Goosebumps, but you're not at Midsummer yet. (laughs) That's the kind of range we're going for, maybe 15, 16. Yeah, sure. It's a good gateway to horror film. It is a good gateway. (laughs) Now, this this is going to be a deep cut, Vari, but we talked about a movie months ago now called Ghost Stories, Mm -hmm. which was also a collection of horror shorts. This seems like a more tween, teen, friendly Juvenile version, version of Ghost Story. Ghost yeah. Story is quite uh, like cerebral mm. and thought-provoking stuff. Mm. I don't think this will quite go that deep. No. But I do like that idea of like you've got a good short. Let's You don't have to stretch out into a movie. Let's have multiple of them and kind of get most like more bang for your buck. Absolutely. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me of It a bit as well yeah. with the setting. It's the nostalgia of a different era. It's in a small town. It's got teenagers as the protagonists but with Guillermo del Toro's twist on it with these monsters and that folklore aspect of horror that he brings out as well, which I just absolutely adore, and the motif of the book, which he actually used from this original um, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark books when he read it like 30 years ago. Mm. He got inspired by it and that's the book that appears in Pan's Labyrinth, if you remember the film. And so this is his chance to go and make the stories that inspired him. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's real. I did not know that. That's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. That and makes it, sense. It's now. nice to know that like it's been gestating with him for so long. And he's finally, even though he's only a producer, and he, he seems like a pretty hands-on kind of producer. Yeah. Because it does look like a Guillermo del Toro film with all like even the way it's lit and all, all the mm. practical effects and the for monsters. Sure. It's cool to see that he's actually finally paying homage to the things that like created mm. his Little Empire. Yeah. Which is why I think he must have, because he wrote it and he brought on the director, Andre Oervredal, who's Norwegian, and he has directed Troll Hunters from 2010 and The Autopsy of Jane Doe. So that's got a lot of monster practical yeah. effects in it as well. So I think they team up really well with this one. Yeah, absolutely. Troll Hunters is a cool film. Check it out. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I'm i actually, even though I have no nostalgia for this book, no. didn't read it as a kid, no, I'm no. actually kind of excited for this movie because I love I mean, I just love creativity, really. Yeah. And this looks like a really creative horror film. There are moments in the trailer one to do with something on someone's skin Ooh, away, yeah, that, that makes me, me physically uncomfortable yes. <laughs> to watch. Oh. But the fact that a film, you know, something being projected at 24 frames a second can elicit 
an emotion like that out of you, I think is a wonderful thing. And the fact that it can make you uneasy and cruel and mm. it's no small feat. And that scene alone sold it for me. So who do you think should see scary stories to tell in the dark? So I think this film will appeal to, like you say, fans of Goosebumps. I'm getting vibes from Jeepers Creepers. Yep. So any of those monster movies. Yeah. Creature from the Black Lagoon, you'll have a good time seeing this film or even obviously fans of the original novel that it's based. Yeah, old horror style of films. Um, Even Guillermo del Toro's filmography, it feels like a bit Crimson Peak, maybe a bit of It, Mm -hmm. the the first one. (laughs) All those monster horrors, it looks creepy. Also still in cinemas and strap in because there's many films to talk about. Abominable. Yi helps a Yeti find his home back in the Himalayas. That is a mouthful. Ugly dolls. A bright, colourful kids film with Kelly Clarkson singing. Dora and the Lost City of Gold. A teenage Dora returns to the jungle with her friends to help find an ancient civilization. Ad Astra. Brad Pitt travels in space to find feelings. <laughs> Rambo Last Blood. The conclusion to Rambo's iconic tale. And Good Boy. The kid version of Superbad. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, so you can hear about all of those movies and, in fact, everything that's in cinemas right now in our back catalogue, which you can access from whichever podcast app you would like. To lose something that should have been immortal. Please tell me it isn't true. The Goldfinch was released in 2013 and is now considered a modern classic after winning the Pulitzer Prize for Literature. However, the book is also famously long and the movie always seemed near impossible to condense. So Vari, how did they do? This one is the closest to a book adaptation as you'll find. I think I had not read the book myself. Well, it's like 800 pages. But it's Who's got time for that? 790. <laughs> I think last week I was saying that it was 1,000 pages. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it's more like 700. <laughs> it's hmm. fine. Oh, it's easy. <laughs> for those who don't know, like myself, it's about 13-year-old Theo who loses his mum in a bombing at an art gallery and – he then sort of just takes a famous artwork called yeah. The Goldfinch, <laughs> which was his mother's favourite painting. Mm. Um, and then we just watch his life basically as it bounces around these homes and how the people in his life he meets influences this tumultuous journey into adulthood. Yeah, so, the, I mean, the, the the book in general was kind of, it was like that juxtaposition of as his life deteriorates and he gets into crime and stuff, he's got this one painting, The Goldfinch, which is like a representation of like his past and his mother and mm. and it's also like that's from one society when he's slipping into another and it's all of this kind of stuff. But I do know of the book that it does go in many different directions and has many different asides and things like that, which as a movie uh, there's normally a pretty consistent through line. How mm. do you think they did like as far as like asides in the movie and things like that? Do you think it, it works or do you think it kind of feels a little bit uh, broken apart? Yeah, look, they didn't go off on tangents. It is quite linear at the majority, but it does feel like sort of sliced up a lot. Like there are a lot of scenes where they've obviously tried to fit a lot in and they've sort of condensed it all together. I'm I'm wondering how much they have actually filmed and the poor editor has had to put together (laughs) because it does feel episodic. 
but in that way sort of like chapters and yeah. because it is over a lifetime you're gonna get that sort of feeling yeah. um so it didn't feel jarring to me watching it i didn't feel like out of place it was to have got this snippet and and this snippet and and it goes through his life and so in that way and from the outset as well it kind of reminded me of a series of unfortunate events right. by lemony snicket right. it's that really nice kid he had a good childhood. He's got a very attentive parents and he's quite well off, um, well educated and quite worldly um, for his young age. And then a tragic, in a tragic circumstance, he loses his mother. He does have a father who appears briefly in the film who's not a very nice person yeah. but was estranged at the time. So he, the kid essentially feels like an orphan because he doesn't know his father and almost gets to live with this really nice family who he's friends with from school. Nicole Kidman's the mother. And then you he sees that his life could be really nice and beautiful and, and happy. And then his father comes along and rips him away and he just falls down this deep dark hole and goes a completely different direction. Yeah. So oh. it is that whole thing. It's like musing on life. And, and I guess most films fall into a three-act structure, and that's a pretty traditional structure, but yeah. not all films necessarily have to. In fact, Midsummer was one we talked about, but we also doesn't. That's more of a five-act structure, mm -hmm. and it doesn't mm. always need to be that. And I, I agree with you. Like, uh, ep it, if, like episodic is very book-like because yeah. often you'll stop a book at a chapter and it's like watching an episode of something. But I think that that is as valid as any other kind of structure, and you just need to know that, I think, going in. It's like it's not going to be your more standard Hollywood fare. It is slightly more uh, long form and disjointed and in a way like the themes are quite beautiful. It also marries real life and fiction in, in this kind of cool way because the goldfinch is a real painting. Mm. The, the painter of the goldfinch died in an explosion much like, you know, at the start of this film. I like that it does kind of marry actual real life events with this kind of fictitious character. Mm. And would you say that the the premise of the story is – the what or the who's influence the ways in which we live our lives or how they play out and maybe the the what ifs or what could be's are what plague everyone's minds at some, yeah, at some time in their life. It's basically serendipity. Yeah. They show that he could have one path in life and then he goes down another path and it ends up influencing how he becomes an adult um, and he bounces around and meets all these different people and, yeah, it's it's a sad story, really. Mm. It does sound like choose your own adventure, but <laughs> you're not choosing. Everyone yeah. else is choosing. <laughs> Very uncomfortably just have to watch him. Right. <laughs> so Ansel Elgort is someone that I've had my mm. mind changed on. When I first mm. saw him, it was in, what's the cancer movie? Fold in Our Stars. Fold in Our Stars. And I was That's like, oh, yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a bit of a pretty boy or whatever. Movie. But throughout everything since then, I really rate him. I think he's yeah. quite great. Yeah, Baby Driver was really good. Mm. And I, it's kind of nice to see that he has broken out of like the teen heartthrob mold that he was kind of a little bit thrust into at the yeah. very start of his career. Sure. And he's doing things like The Goldfinch, which is quite a yeah. challenging character piece. Mm. So I'm all in for answer. Oh, God. But how did you find the cast? Yeah, we've got an all-star cast. We've got Nicole Kidman, Sarah Paulson, Luke Wilson is in there, Ansel Elgort, as you said. His younger self is played by Oaks Fegley, who was Pete in Pete's Dragon. Oh, really? Um, and his friend as a young kid is played by Finn Wolfhard, who is from Stranger Things. And um, he has to play a, a Russian, I think. He does a Russian accent. And he got the job because they were looking at actual Russian actors to do it. He nailed the accent in the audition. But 
you know, I think it would have been more realistic if they'd gotten a Russian <laughs> mm. accent. That's the only thing that really stood out to me that wasn't quite right. And yeah, because he is, accent, yeah. Yeah. because he is such a level now where everyone knows or recognizes him, yeah. it's hard to sort of dissociate yourself. Feels weird hearing that out of his mouth. Mm. I'm like, oh, that's not real. <laughs> <laughs> not real. Um, I did want to mention also the cinematographer for this film is Roger Deakins. Mm, yes. Who we all know, well, hopefully we all know, <laughs> won the if, Oscar if for- If you're into cinematography <laughs> in any way, Roger Deakins is like the man above all. He, he is, he guy. is. He won the, the Oscar for Blade Runner 2049, has mm, been nominated so. for 13 other yep. Oscars over his time. He's, most beautiful movie I've ever seen, mm-hmm. like, as, yep. like as in looks most beautiful, is a movie called The Assassination of Jesse James mm. by the coward Robert Ford. Yep. The title. <laughs> mm. It is beautiful. Roger Deakins can shoot the hell out of a movie. So even yep. his name attached to any movie, mm. like the Dune remake that's coming out, yep. yeah, I'm pumped. So as soon as I heard that he was on board for The Goldfinch, yes. Beautiful. So who do you think should see The Goldfinch? This one's a more art house film. It is a bit longer as well. Fans of the book will like it, but I think people who are into a nice character drama. Yeah, we haven't had a nice character drama film in a while, so this is a good one to go see. I think if you're into the psychology of the human mind, uh, I anticipate this film might be your cup of tea, if not for the all-star cast. Are you in this together? Flesh-eating zombies. Don't joke. It's really, really creepy. Oh, man, this isn't going to end well. They gravitate towards things they did when they were alive. Chardonnay. Did she just say Chardonnay? Yeah, she did. Jim Jarmusch is an American independent filmmaker with a style all of his own. Either you love him or you've never heard of him. With his films being far from most people's radar, The Dead Don't Die seems like the film that might change that. I hope this changes everyone's mind on zombie films. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, so Jim Jarmusch is quite an eccentric filmmaker. He makes Mm. movies like Broken Flowers, The Only Lovers Left Alive, like quite obscure arty films. But this film looks kind of more accessible definitely it's quite dry in its humor and it's quite wacky and it's quite silly and it is to be said that who better to do dry sense of humor than bill murray exactly there is no one better he's like the king of that um but this the dead don't die um is set in the peaceful town of centerville and it finds itself battling a horde of zombies when they arise from the earth because of a fracking incident (laughs) yeah apparently polar fracking polar fracking which i've never heard of (laughs) What what I kind of like about even just the aesthetic, like the the font that they've chosen and the way that they've filmed it, is it's very George A. Romero zombie film. Mm. You know, there's been there was a resurgence of zombie films in the mid two thousands, like Twenty Eight Days Later and Dawn, the remake of Dawn of the Dead, yeah. where zombies became ultra scary and fast and yeah. running. It. Mm. But this is like old school nineteen fifties nineteen sixties style yeah. zombies placed in a dry Jim Jarmusch comedy. You got Adam Drive, you got Bill Murray, you got Tilda Swinton. What a cast. Yeah. You got cameos from so many famous people. Um, Carol Kane, I think, Iggy is in Pop. this. <laughs> Iggy Steve Pop. Buscemi. Steve Buscemi. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that, so that, that's what I, I, this looks like film student heaven. Yeah. <laughs> and it must be said that this is not a remake of the 1975 film of the same name, if oh. that's what you're anticipating. It is heavily influenced by the 1968 Night of the Living Dead classic original black and white horror. Yeah, George A. Romero. There are, there yeah, there are a lot of influences that you can see coming out in this film. 
Um, but it also feels like with the contemporary humour, like Shaun of the Dead or Zombieland. Absolutely. Which I also, also get, uh, again, I'm, I guess I'm talking to film students here, but the very Wes Anderson-y kind of vibe. Yeah. Wes Anderson is known for his super dry sense of humour, flat delivery, and that, that the joke is that mm. there's something extreme going on, but they're so monotone. Mm. Yeah. And that definitely has a lot of this injected into mm. it. Like there's a line in the trailer where Bill Murray's like, well, guess we better get going. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just so kind of flat, but I love yeah. that juxtaposition. But the director is known for a lot of real world aspects. So you might have two people having conversations and nothing actually is happening. So it might be real in the real world, but on film maybe it doesn't translate as well. So I don't know if this will be the action-packed zombie film that people may expect if they're unfamiliar with the director. Yeah, and I yeah, Mm. that's a good point. I think knowing that it's Jim Jarmusch, he's a a talky director. Mm. (laughs) He directs movies where people have conversations you know, he doesn't direct the remake of Dawn of the Dead. No. He does the off-kilter indie comedy of zombies. So there's very contemporary aspects in it as well. As you said, the off-kilter, it's very self-aware. Adam Driver's character will often say things that break the fourth wall, which kind of confuse the other characters, but it's funny for the audience. So, yeah, you can't really take this very seriously. It's very silly. Well, I mean, in a movie where someone says to another person, what do you think? And he goes, I don't know thinking zombies <laughs> you know that it's kind of aware of how yeah, silly yeah, it's for sure. <laughs> and the way he says when he doesn't understand zombies ghouls yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's just funny because i don't know why but i love <laughs> so who do you think should see the dead don't die i think if you like those classic schlocky horror films that you know they were scary back in the day but for us they're probably not that scary it's all a bit of silly fun it feels like one of those, like a Shaun of the Dead, dry comedy, um, bit downbeat. Yeah, something different, but reinventing the zombie genre. Fans of George A. Romero should see this film because even the poster itself is, you know, evocative is of his work. Hey, if you're interested in movies and if you're listening to a podcast all about them, you might be, and you think you're a bit of a dab hand at making movies, don't forget the Unseen Film Festival. Entries are still open until October 16. So make sure you get your films in by then. There's more than $10,000 worth of prizes. I'm talking cinema cameras. I'm talking software. I'm talking a bit of everything. Visit unseenfilms.com.au for more information. Now, for your chance to win a Gold Class Double Pass, simply head to the Village Cinema's Facebook or Instagram page, look for the Cinema Crew post and answer the question. Well, we were talking about Screen Australia's Gender Matters program earlier and we'd like to know who your favourite female director is. That's true, and 2019 has been a great source of them so far as well. For your chance to win, simply leave your answer with the hashtag The Cinema Crew. Yeah, you've got like five to choose from. Yeah, (laughs) there's normally two. (laughs) (laughs) Next week, you're not getting one but two episodes, you lucky thing. We've got a mini episode breaking down Joker spoiler-free, and then we're getting into it, the nitty-gritty spoiler-filled review of Joker's coming the next day. But until then, thank you, Vari. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. My name is Cambo, and this is The Cinema Crew with Village Cinemas.